Well, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 43 this morning. So let's read this passage. Let me read it for us as you follow along, and then we're going to take a slight uh, detour and go back and review just a little bit, because it's been about two and a half months since we were in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to remind us of the uh, first part of chapter 5, so we can kind of take a running, uh, get a running start into this last section. Chapter 5, starting in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the heathen do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, let's go back and review just a little bit so we remember where we are in this passage Chapter 5, verse 17 through 48 is actually one long section. Now, we divided it up into sections for the sake of of, uh, sermons over the course of several weeks. But there is one overarching theme. The parts aren't really isolated from each other. Jesus is using them in a flow in a sermon. Remember, the little headers that you have weren't there. Okay, Somebody put those there to help us. Even the chapter headings were just there so that we can keep up. The theme is Jesus' fulfillment of the law. That's the theme of section 5, 17 through 48. And in 17 through 19, we see Jesus declaring his purpose. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' statement here is very important, and we've talked about this many times. The fact that Jesus did not come with some new way to God. He didn't throw out the Old Testament law. But he came to once and for all fulfill it and complete its requirements. He very explicitly says, we're not to relax it or make it easier to obey. In other words, well, this is kind of hard. Let's see if we can kind of tone down some of these rules, make it easier to obey. In fact, he says that the law's requirements must be kept in place. They come from a holy God who never changes and who does not give in on his own standard, the standard of total and complete perfection. It's important that we grasp Jesus' point here before we go any further. Jesus is saying this, I am the fulfillment, the completion, the only holy and sinless answer to the fulfillment of the law's requirements. The only way to know God is to depend totally on Jesus And his sacrifice for us. And Jesus in verses 17 through 19 is saying, that is me. I'm the one that you can depend upon. I've come to fulfill the law. You see, I can actually keep all these laws. And then he gives us a challenge to live fully in this truth in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
the leaders of the Jewish religion, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this seems like a high standard to me, seemingly impossible to attain. But let's break it down and discover what Jesus is saying. First, let's remember that he has told us that our ability to fulfill the law's requirement is found in our dependence on him. So what's happening here? Is this contradictory? First, we're supposed to depend upon him, but now we're supposed to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. What is taking place here is Jesus' clarification of how his children are to follow him. Jesus is saying that some higher approach is needed. And that is what we're going to see in verses 21 through 47. They're going to spell them out. He's going to give us six examples. And he wants to spell these out to show how Jesus' demand surpasses that of current ethical teaching based on Old Testament law. It does this not by being more specific in a literal observance of what we do, but by penetrating to the true will of God that the law was intended for. See, Jesus is countering what we'll call cheap law. The belief that we can come up with some methodology to make it possible to actually keep the law. See, we, we like methods, don't we? Really, not a week goes by that someone does not come into my office and say something along these lines. Now, not these exact words, but this is what they're going for. Just give me four steps to being spiritual. <laughs> give me a list of things that I can do that will completely rid me of struggles in following Jesus. Give me three easy steps. That's all I want. Jesus is pushing back against that very idea. A tendency to look at our outward actions and think, well, if I can get four things in place and I know what they are and you'll just make sure I do them, I'll be good. You see, he wants us to not look at our outward actions but at the deep issues of our hearts and souls. The law's regulations designed to cover human sinfulness they're not to take precedent over God's original intention of men and women living deeply in a dependent love relationship with Jesus Christ. It is this that Jesus gives these six examples. So let's quickly look back on these. And here's how we can tell. They start in verse 41. They end in verse 48. And each of them kind of does this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Right? So that's how we know where the six are. Verse 21. Jesus says, now you have heard that you're not supposed to murder. Okay, that's a good rule. Let's keep that one. Obviously, we're not going to stop that one. But let me talk to you about hatred. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You see, let's look at the internal issue of hatred, not just murder. Verse 27, he brings up this idea of adultery, sexual sin. All these things, okay, here's what happens here. Well, let me talk to you not about adultery, everybody. Let me talk to you about lust. Everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already in his heart. See, Jesus goes a step beyond and said... Yes, good rule, but let's go a step further and look internally. Verse 31, 
He talks about divorce and all the rules about divorce. And here's how you divorce your wife. And you give her this paper and you do this. And you say, okay. He says, you know what? Let's talk about the permanence of marriage. Let's talk about these commitments that are made to one another in marriage. See, that's the internal piece of this. Verse 33. They were big on swearing oaths. This is how I know I'm, you know I'm truthful because I swore the oath. And we still do that today, right? I swear on and then fill in the blank. I believe somebody on Survivor did that a few years ago to get a heads up. He said, I swear on my mother, you know, she's, oh, well, it wasn't even true. His mother was still alive. You see, we play with these oaths. And Jesus is saying, we can play with oaths. You can come up with these oaths and it's still not going to do them. Those are good things. But let's just talk about simple truthfulness. Let's talk about simple truthfulness. That what we say is true. And when we speak, it is truth. Verse 38, vengeance and retaliation is addressed here. The, old, the good old eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Somebody does this, you can do that. Jesus says, now let's look at this. Let's look at unselfishness. Let's look at no retaliation, no resistance. Let's not push back against those who are evil. And then in verse 43... He says this, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So what truth are we to take hold of? What, was Je what Jesus was doing here in these six commandments is showing his disciples how some of the scribes and Pharisees applied these Old Testament teachings. And then over against that, what he was calling them to do, something deeper Here's the easy way, everybody says, just come up with a set of rules and just do those. Let's go deeper. Let's talk about what's inside you. Let's talk about your attitude. Let's talk about the heart behind these laws. He is saying, if you'll come to me and trust in me and receive the power of the kingdom and be cleansed on the inside by the forgiveness and love of God that I offer... And place your hope on my promises. And let the cross cover all your failures and imperfections. Then you will be able to live this way. And your life will be that light to the world that proves that we are the children of God. And so let's dig in to this short few verses here starting at verse 43. We have the basis which we're going on. This is number six of his examples of here's what you've heard it said... Love your enemy, uh, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I'm going to say to you, nope, love your enemy. And then we're going to talk about, we're going to go even further. We're going to pray for those who persecute us. What does it mean to hate your enemy? Well, it's interestingly not a quotation from the Old Testament law. But it was inferred by the religious leaders. And then the extra things that, you know... The Jewish leaders would read the, the Torah and then come up with the rules on how to do that. And it was inferred here, well, since we're to love our neighbor, that must mean we can hate our enemies. Jesus is challenging this idea that we have an easy road when it comes to loving. See, that'd just be easy, right? Love your neighbors. You see, Jesus challenges this whole idea of the definition of neighbor. Hmm, has he done this before? Yes. He has done it before. One of the reasons we know that Jesus is challenging this and 
is saying, you have the wrong interpretation of the term neighbor. We see in Luke 10, 29, when Jesus is asked this direct question, who is my neighbor? What does Jesus do? He answers by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. Well, probably one of the most famous parables in all of Scripture. In that parable, the man who loved, the man who served the one in need was a Samaritan. And the wounded man who he loved and served was a Jew. Now, the Jews and Samaritans were anything but friends and brothers. They had nothing to do with each other. There were tons of religious and racial animosities between these two groups. Jews would not even go through Samaria, even if it was the shortest route to where they were going. In Columbus, we could liken this to the shortest route to where I'm going is 71. But I hate you so badly, I'm taking 270. I'm taking the beltway around you. That's what was happening. So Jesus says, who's your neighbor? And interestingly enough, if we really look at this passage, here's what he's doing. He doesn't say, I have two commands. One, that you love your neighbor, and one, that you love your enemy. He says, I have one command. Love your neighbor. And I mean even if he's your enemy. See, there's not two categories. We're to love our neighbors, even if they are our enemy. Well, what kind of animosity is going on here that people would say, well, let's just uh, love our neighbors, hate our enemies. What does he have in mind? Well, from the context, we see that he means a wide range of feelings from very severe opposition to minor kind of snubbing to just kind of little problems. So we're going to look at some of these. And as we do, ask yourself, who in my experience comes closest to this? And then be praying that God will use his word, even now, to give you a heart to love them. See, this is the point at which I could say, take your pen and write on the side of your notes all the people that just came to mind. That's what we want to do. Well, first we see in verse 44, clearly those who persecute you. Clearly an enemy means one who opposes you or even tries to hurt you. Persecute means to pursue with harmful intentions. It might include very severe hostility like the hostility that Jesus faced. I would say that it might also include those whose lifestyles, whose belief systems or actions offend you. Maybe you don't even have a relationship with them, you don't even know, but they've hurt you deeply. And you've cut, or you've cut off a relationship with them because of the hurt. This might even include whole groups of people who you don't really know, but you've decided are your enemy. This might be the category where in the U.S. we'd say, well, you know, those Muslims, they're our enemy. See, because they've opposed us. They've pursued us with harmful intentions. Well, Jesus said, yeah, love them. Love them. If they kill you, love them. If they take away a family member and harm them, love them. If they destroy your home, love them. Love your enemies. 
be that kind of person. Be so changed on the inside that it is really possible to do this. Allow God to love them through you. Those who persecute you. And then there are those who oppose you in maybe some more minor way. You know, I think Jesus has in mind situations that are a little less dramatic. We see this at the end of verse 45. It says, God causes his son to rise on who? The evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, these evil and unrighteous are people who defy the laws of God. They resist his will. They don't submit to his authority. So what do we learn from this? Well, there are a lot of people who don't admit to, be God's in, admit to being God's enemies. They'd resent that they would be called God's enemies. But God mentions them here to illustrate God's love for those people. So another way to understand enemies in this passage is that they're people who are repeatedly going against your desires. They might not even call themselves your enemy. You might not even call them your enemy, using that word, but they resist your will. They are contrary and antagonistic. In this sense, the enemy might be a rebellious child even. Or he might be an uncaring, non-listening, ill-tempered husband. He might be an annoying neighbor that complains about everything you ever do in your yard. You see, these are those people who have hurt me or angered me, and yet there's still a level of relationship there, but it's affected in some way by unforgiveness. Now, Jesus has an interesting way of challenging me in this area. And so earlier this summer, Terry and I were at a wedding, and we'd gone in and found our table, and there were extra seats at the table, and I'm thinking, yes, I get all those extra little goodies to go, to go home. And I probably will get an extra salad going with it. So I was glad. <clears throat> well, a few minutes, we'd sat there for a few minutes collecting extra, no, we weren't yet. <laughs> and I see someone walk in the door, and my first thought, oh, you have got to be kidding. See, it was someone that, Many years ago, we had, how can we put this, butted heads. And God had been working on me all these years to just let these things go. Forgive this person. Pray for them. Want their best. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But here they walked. And God, in his infinite humor, <laughs> guess whose table they were sitting at? So God has this way of, of saying, are you serious about this? You see, here's what we do. These are the people that we avoid. You know, you're in the grocery store and you find the other aisle because you realize they're in five and suddenly you need to get something in six. This happens at church too. This is that person that you think... If I walk this way, there's a crowd of people here. They won't even notice that I'm here. Here's what we do. We just try to avoid the whole situation. But Jesus says, love them. And then verse 46 and 47. Those who, you, who don't love you and are not your brother... If, those, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't, the, the tax gatherers, the, 
the guys that work for the IRS, they do the same. You know, ta- those tax people, they get a bad rap in, in uh, the Bible. I'm so glad that's changed. Um, <laughs> if you greet your brothers only, what more do you do than others? You know, the, even the heathen greet their brothers. Well, here in verse 46, the enemy is the one who doesn't love you. If you just love those who love you, you're not loving the way I commanded, Jesus said. The enemy is the one who's not your brother in verse 47. If you greet your brothers only, you're not loving the way that I commanded you. So the point seems to be don't stop loving because the person does things that offend you or dishonor you or hurt your feelings or anger you or disappoint you or frustrate you or threaten you or even kill you. It might even be those that we're told will be our enemies because of the gospel. The gospel and its offensiveness is hated and those who stand for it are hated also. But again, Jesus says, love your enemies. And he means keep on loving them. Well, what is this love? How does it show itself? Well, in verse 7, there's this idea of greeting your brothers. Simple courtesy. Simple courtesy. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would challenge us on such a simple level? One that we can relate to. A simple, hello, how are you? Here he's saying we can't be, this is that idea of we can't be in the same room with an enemy. This is that person in that other aisle. I'll just ignore them. Honestly, there are sometimes there are people in our lives who have hurt us. And we do believe that the way to deal with our feelings is just to not be in contact or to acknowledge them. But Jesus says, treat them with the same simple respect and courtesy that you would those that you're closest to. See, the rest of the story of the wedding reception was that we sat and had an unbelievable conversation about what God was doing in our ministries, in our families, in our lives. You see, my guess is we'd both been praying for one another that God would do those things. And in not avoiding it, in not holding on to the bitterness and allowing God to love, because I, I have to assume this went both ways. Because I know it's hard to believe, but I can be unlovable at times. Just simple courtesy, and God can teach us a lot. The second is in verse 45, this idea of God bringing rain, bringing sun, meeting needs. This is often called, this idea of sun and rain, good things coming to those who are good and those who are evil, of those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, is often called God's common grace, his goodness to everyone. In this case, love is very practical. It's an effort to meet a person's physical needs. Sunshine and rain are two things that are needed to grow so that there will be food in human life. This is the kind of thing I think Paul had in mind. In Romans 12, he quotes Proverbs 25, and he says this. If your enemy is hungry, look the other way. Don't worry about it. Somebody else is probably... No, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this sounds worse than it really is. We think, oh, coals on his head. Yeah, no, that's not what it means. See, the idea of coals, you've heard of sackcloth and ashes. The whole idea of coals on a head is a sign of and a symbol of repentance. What this is actually saying is when you feed your enemy when he's hungry, when you give him something to drink when he's thirsty, in doing that, you then allow God to start to stir in them the fires of repentance. Loving your enemy means practical acts of helpfulness in the ordinary things of life. You know, God gives his enemies sunshine and rain. You give your enemies food and water. Love your enemies through service. We might even have a whole new section of, of things we can do called enemy love works. Serve them, Jesus says. Love them. And then we're going to pop back to verse 44 to see the third way that we can show this kind of love. And that is through prayer. I say to you, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. We see this idea of praying for enemies carried out in an amazing way in Acts 7. When Stephen, as he's being stoned for his faith, this is what it says. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then, of course, Jesus himself exemplified this as he hung on the cross and prayed and declared, Father, forgive them. Prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love because it means that you have to really want something good to happen to them. You might do nice things for them without any genuine desire that things will go well with them. But prayer... Prayer for them in the presence of God who knows your heart is interceding with God on their behalf. It may be for their conversion. It may be for their repentance. It may be that they would be awakened to truth. It may be that they would be stopped in their downward spiral of sin no matter what it took. But the prayer that Jesus has in mind here is always for their good. This idea isn't and pray that God will reap his heavenly wrath down on my persecutors. No, this is for their good. Jesus is calling us not just to do good things for our enemy, like greeting them and helping with their needs. He is also calling us to want their best and to express those wants in prayer. Our hearts should want their salvation and want their presence in heaven and want their Eternal happiness. So we have to pray like the Apostle Paul did in Romans 10 verse 1. He was praying for the Jewish people. Many of whom had made life very hard for him. And he prayed this. My heart's desire and prayer to God is for their salvation. Now there's an interesting little section that we're just going to touch on. In verse 45... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This does not mean that we earn our way into God's family by loving our enemies. 
Rather, it means that we love our enemies. When we love our enemies, we prove ourselves to be in God's family. If you love your enemies the way God loves his enemies, then you show that you are a child of God. You are seen to be a child of God by those watching you. Loving your enemy doesn't pay for your birth into God's family. It proves that you've been born into God's family. Love your enemies and show that God is your father. Well, where in the world do we get the power from to do this? Because I don't know about you, but I can't do this. Just think how astonishing this would be when it, if it began happening on a major scale in the real world? Could anything show the truth and power and reality of Christ more than this? If we would love our enemies. Earlier in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says that not only can you endure the mistreatment of the enemy, but you can also rejoice in it. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. See, the outcome of this is still to come. This means that the command to love our enemy is a command to set our mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. The command is to love your enemy it means to find your hope and satisfaction in God and in his great reward, not in the way that people treat you. See, we like that immediacy, don't we? Somebody's treating me bad, I don't have to love them. God says, no, love them. Now, they may still treat you bad. That doesn't change, necessarily. But our reward isn't here. And our reward is much greater than somebody liking us. Loving your enemy doesn't earn you the reward of heaven. But treasuring the reward of heaven empowers you to love your enemy. Why do we love our enemies? Because we got something better coming. And finally, it is all summed up in the concluding verse, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hmm. How does that work? Here's what's happening. See, legalism's been left far behind, hasn't it? And the law has been fulfilled. But God's demand on his people is still moral perfection in our actions and our attitudes. Because he is perfect and holy. If he did anything else, if he let it down, he wouldn't be God. This standard is unattainable. We've already confirmed from a human perspective. We cannot lower the bar in order to accommodate our sin. See, we already see too much of that in our culture today. Let's accommodate ourselves. Let's just lower the bar. And then we'll all feel good about ourselves. So how do we love? Only through Jesus' perfect obedience. He genuinely loved his enemies. Because Jesus fulfilled God's law perfectly, guess what happens? This is credited to every believer. You see, within us is the ability to love this way. So we have been given Jesus' righteousness as well as the spirit that enables us to progressively grow in obedience. This is practical righteousness. 
See, it's the Holy Spirit who does this loving, not us. It is Christ in us loving this way, not us. The Spirit works to give us the desire and the power to live this way as we rehearse and re-believe the gospel of Christ over and over. Now, real quickly, a topic that ties into this, I just want to say a couple things about because I have this feeling that if I don't, we'll get, I'll get questions. Where does, how, what's forgiveness got to do with this? Does forgiveness fall in anywhere here? Yes, it does. Let me just say a couple things about this. Forgiveness is an event and a process. You know, unforgiveness feels like a punishment to the person who's not been forgiven, when in reality, it is a jail for the unforgiver. See, we think, they did me wrong, that group of people, I don't like them, this person who did this horrible thing, I'm just going to not forgive them, that'll get them. Here's what happens, though. They, They probably don't even know. It's not affecting them, they don't care. Right? Who's it, who's it putting in jail? You. You see, we have to keep this process going within us so forgiveness can take place. Second, how do you know if you're forgiven? How do I check my heart? Well, you have no desire for revenge, Romans 12 says. No longer an expected payment. You've released it. There's no payment sought for the offense nor a correction to what's been done. We don't say, well, I'll do that as long as they get there. No, doesn't work that way. There's no distrust or suspicion. See, I knew that day at the, the wedding reception that I'd forgiven because I didn't sense distrust or suspicion. Just that first twinge of, Okay, God, in my face now, got to see where I'm at on this. There's no discussion of the hurt through gossip. We've remained in community. Isn't that what we do? We sometimes just go, I'll just escape. So I'll leave this relationship, I'll leave this group, I'll leave this church. I'll leave. That's how we take care of it. No, you've remained in community, you haven't escaped. You continue to grow in your intimacy with God. There is ongoing spiritual preparation to prevent this from happening again. Don't forget this one. You're praying blessing on the offender. And there's a deep sense of personal peace and joy because of the obedience. The number three about forgiveness, remember it's an act of grace. It is grounded in God's unmerited favor. Forgiveness is the release of a debt that you believe is owed. You have to release the offense and the offender. The only way for us to live out the truth held within these verses is complete, total dependency on Jesus. He is the only one who can love this way. He's the only one who can forgive this way. It is his spirit working in us that allows us and empowers us to forgive. So let's love. Let's forgive. Let's follow Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we acknowledge that you are at work and you are speaking. God, in in this quiet moment, 
God, help us to acknowledge what you have told us. God, as you have brought names to mind and faces to mind, may we forgive. May we obey as you have spoken. I'd encourage many of you to come to these altars and pray for whoever that has come to mind. Let's start there. Let's begin with that hard one. Can we pray for them? Maybe now as I'm talking, you just want to come to these altars or you want to go to a prayer partner and commit today to live in the truth that you've heard. To lay down the offense and the bitterness and the wrath and the unforgiveness. You know, you can leave that all here. Maybe you just want to come and begin praying for that person or commit to God anew to praying for their best. Let's give it all to Jesus. Let's let him love through us. We can go from here today in obedience and freedom. Let's stand together as we worship. and Come and pray this morning for that person who God has brought to mind.